Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life. Ordinary Life is an educational offering um, of St. Paul's United Methodist Church, and um, I'm glad that you are here joining me. If you have been virtually attending Ordinary Life for the past nine months, you recognize that my teaching partner, soon to be Dr. Holly Hudley, is not here today. She has the day off, and I tell you, I fiercely miss her being here. I have not taught alone for nine months, so uh, bear with me. I'm glad you're here today, and I am grateful for all of you for hanging in there as you have done for the last nine months with us uh, while we have not been able together. I thank you for your patience. If you go to the Ordinary Life website, you will find a wealth of material there. You can subscribe to get the previews and summaries of this time. You can subscribe to our podcast in between. And further, if you are so inclined, you can make a donation to Ordinary Life. All the money that we collect in Ordinary Life goes to various nonprofits, particularly those who are helping out during this um, pandemic time. I wanted to let you know that not tomorrow, but the following Monday night, I will be doing a webinar talk for the Jung Center here in Houston. I meant to have a slide up for that. I'll put something in the, the summary that goes out so that you can have a link to it. Um, the webinar is going to be called Hope in a Time of Disaster and Distrust. So um, if you're interested in attending that virtually, there will be information for you to do that. As always, I want to thank the people who are behind the scenes. If you were here, this is somewhat what it would look like, except that was from last week. Holly's not here. Holly is in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. But I thank Tim Leatherwood and John Watson and Olivia Watson and William Budge. And I want to say that no matter who you are, no matter whether you used to attend Ordinary Life and now are a pajama person like people who are distant viewers are, uh, or whether you are a person in some other part of the world or in the United States and you're in a time zone where you are a wine and cheese person, um, I'm glad you're here. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. When I was a kid, this man was one of my heroes. He was the manager of the New York Yankees, and my aspiration when I grew up was to be a baseball catcher for the New York Yankees like Yogi Berra. And Casey Stingle uh, once said, uh, never make a prediction particularly about the future. He had colorful language. Well, no one on the first Sunday of this recently past year could have predicted what 2020 would be like. As the comics told us, I can't see what's coming in this year. I don't have 2020 vision. It was a joke, but 2020 turned out to be quite a year. We had the virus, we had exposure to political chaos almost every day. And then with the murder of George, 
George Floyd, the unveiling of the systemic racism that's been part of this country's DNA from our founding. Our democracy seems to have survived, but just barely. There will be a lot of repair work to do. We are hoping by summertime to begin gathering again here like we became accustomed to doing for years. That will be wonderful. And at the moment, terrible losses are still mounting for, from COVID-19. But even in the midst of this time, we have so much for which to be thankful. We have vaccines that have proven effective in dealing with the virus. Uh, that's one thing. The brilliant scientists who develop them I'm so grateful for the healthcare workers at every level who have risked their own lives to help save the lives of others and to provide comfort to those who, uh, whose lives could not be saved. We are grateful for those who work to make sure we could have food to purchase, those who grew the food, those who stocked the shelves, those who sold it to us. We are grateful to those people who delivered our packages and groceries, who taught our children in the variety of creative ways they figured out how to do so. Had this virus occurred five years ago or 10 years ago, we would not have had the technology to save the lives that we have, uh, to develop the vaccine. 15 years ago, we wouldn't have had the ventilators that we have now. We wouldn't have had the communication systems to keep people updated on what was happening. We would not have had the ability to so quickly develop a vaccine. So on this first Sunday of January 2018, I introduced a new theme in here, and I called it Living Between the No Longer and the Not Yet. And I thought that today, on this first Sunday of a new year, I would revisit this theme and see how, in the light of the trauma we have lived through and are living through, our understanding of this journey has been shaped and shifted during the, the, the last year. Of course, living between the no young, longer and the not yet is true for every one of us all of our lives. We're always between the last second and the next, between the last breath we take, took and the next breath we hope to take. We're between this day, which we hope to live well and survive, and tomorrow, which we hope to wake up to. One of the first lines that I read when I sit to do my daily spiritual practice in the morning is, Today may be the last day that I live. Today may be the day that I die. May this awareness transform how I live this day. I don't know of any spiritual system that does not speak of transitions, necessary endings, of things passing away. Jewish wisdom literature is full of this sort of philosophy. And certainly it is the central foundation stone of Buddhism. Things arise and they fall away. Nothing lasts. 
Now, for the most part, we are able to greet or accept this inevitability with equanimity. Of course, when it moves into or affects places and people where we have strong attachments, especially to people and even ideas, that can, that can become something else. When I was in graduate school, there was a columnist whose writing appeared in the paper that I took at the time. His name was Sidney Harris. He died in 1986. I loved his columns, and I cut many of them out to save for future use. One of the lines he wrote was this. Most of us are broad-minded enough to admit that there are two sides to every question. Our own side and the side that no intelligent, informed, sane, and self-respecting person could possibly hold. Though things arise and they fall away when it comes to our lives, when it comes to the lives of those that we love and cherish, when it comes to our lifestyle, our values that we hold dear, our institutions that we believe sustain us, when these things change or become threatened with extinction, that's another matter. Even before COVID-19 upended our lives, even before the appalling murder of George Floyd, we were revealed to be a very divided country each side claiming its rightness and righteousness. It's ironic, isn't it, that people who claim indivisibility while pledging allegiance to the flag can be so divided. During this past year, our culture has cracked open along fault lines of class, culture, religion, and tribal identity. There are chasms of mutual incomprehension and disdain. One group truly cannot understand why or how another group of right-minded people could possibly hold the positions they do. And not only has politics devolved into a winner-take-all blood sport, but everything seems to be politicized. Now, whether you self-identify as leaning to the right or to the left, it is indisputable that we have just ended one of the strangest and most disorienting years of our country's history. Perhaps it's because we are better electronically connected than ever, that we are more aware of humanity's capacity for foolishness, self-destructiveness, selfishness, and cruelty. But human capacity for foolishness, self-destructiveness, and cruelty seems more intense and more widespread than at any time perhaps since we underwent the horrors of World War II and Nazism of, of, of Germany. When I came up with the idea for this theme two years ago, one of the things I had in mind when I used the phrase no longer is the world that existed prior to the digital revolution and the globalization we have come to accept and take as commonplace. That world once wasn't, and now it's becoming no more. 
When our revolutionary ideas or technology were introduced in the past, it sometimes took generations for them to become not only accepted, but simply known about. The insights of Copernicus and Galileo weren't widely known for hundreds of years. When Gutenberg invented the printing press, that involved a massive revolution. But it took centuries before this revolution was fully unpacked. Our technologies have, have evolved at astonishing speed. There are some of you listening to this who are part of the last generation in the history of the world to know what the world was like before we had digital devices. Now, I can sit in my living room and with the push of a button on a remote control device, can have at my disposal so many options to watch that it is overwhelming. Uh, it, it boggles my mind. While I was working on this talk, I found a reference in a book by Deramut Amurku that led me to search for a book on Amazon on my iPad. I bought it for under five bucks, downloaded it, opened it, and found the particular passage he was referring to. To me, this is an astonishing and miraculous thing. For my granddaughters, it's just ho-hum. We once, some of us, lived on the backside of what I'm calling no longer. At the same time, we are the first generation in the history of the world to know what we know about the cosmos in which we live. It seems like every time I make some reference to what we know about the size and the, uh, of the energy field in which we live, within days, the cosmologists come out with additional data that says it's even bigger. So big, in fact, that the human mind cannot grasp it. And we are the first generation to know this information. The same thing, by the way, can be said about the brain. The brain is far more complex and massive in its workings than we ever imagined. Indeed, the brain can no more comprehend itself than the brain can comprehend the cosmos. Of course, it's an overgeneralization to say that everyone knows this stuff. Some don't know it because of lack of education or lack of access to the information or the fact that their lives are consumed by matters of survival. However, it is true that some people who have access to education and relative ease and access to the information don't avail themselves of this information and knowledge and make it a working part of their lives. Now, for some people, this increased knowledge and information has been a liberation. My hope is that you and I are in that group. For others, the fact that one of the core operating principles of the entire cosmos and of the brain is evolution has become so terrifying that has created deep wells of idiocy and denial and an increase of intensity and stupidity among fundamentalists of all stripes in both religion and politics. Some want to return to the past, a past that 
either was wrong or unlightened or a past that simply doesn't exist. Something that's been constructed out of romantic idealism and nostalgia. After the murder of George Floyd, several product manufacturers such as Aunt Jemima Products announced that they planned to change the way they branded their products. Now, some folks saw this as a major step forward, and some said it was being absolutely unnecessary. Fights were waged, and friendships were lost over issues just like this. The fact is that over the course of human history, all no known jobs have been eliminated several times. Even in this country, that has been true. How many milkmen, lamplighters, or buggy whip makers have you run into lately? One of the reasons I am so committed to dispel the falsehood of fundamentalism in whatever forms it shows up is that not only is it misguided and ignorant, but also it will only result in greater, even greater disillusion and damage. It has caused and ends causing so much human and global mystery. So we are the first and we are the last. We are, some of us at least, the last generation in the history of the world to know what the world was like prior to the digital revolution, prior to smartphones, prior to the internet, and all that this has brought us. This digital revolution has brought us enormous benefits in so many aspects of our lives, uh, but there is a growing awareness among some about the heavy price we are paying because of the constant attention our devices ask of us. This cartoon sums it up pretty good. Where the greeter at the pearly gate said, actually, you had a pretty good life, but you were looking down at your phone and you missed it. Relationship skills are diminishing, rudeness is increasing, a general increase and in a lack of civility seems on the increase. Our digital devices can distract us from life itself. One of the things I have noticed more and more is that people have finally gotten the message that it is not safe to text and drive. So they stop their cars to text. I don't mean they pull over to the side of the road to do that. They just stop and text. Um, when I'm out walking my dog in our neighborhood, I see this frequently. People just stop in the middle of the street and respond to a text. So being both in the generation that is the first and the last gives us an interesting vantage point in which and from which to look at what we have lost and what we have gained. Whereas we used to look to the elders for wisdom and guidance, we now look to our children, not for wisdom and guidance, but for help in learning how to deal with the new technologies that are being given to us. Social anthropologists are saying that we are retaining less and less wisdom and knowledge because we don't need to retain it. It's all instantly available. Not the wisdom, of course, but the knowledge. It's at our fingertips. We remember less, we know less, because we can get absolutely any information we want off the internet. One scholar referred to this, that we are becoming smooped, 
That's a combination of the words smart and stupid. Smart and stupid at once. Consequently, we have created a cultural context in which people are plagued with doubt and fear and anger. Fearful people do fearful things, and angry people do angry things. This is the context in which, as a spiritual teacher, I'm doing the religious and theological work you see in these times. Now, because the religious tradition in which I work bears the label Christian, my focus uh, on the changes that those of us who use Jesus and his teachings as a doorway into the sacred deal with, that's one of my primary interests. One of my goals is to equip all of us with the ability to talk clearly and intelligently with people who are either interested in or who challenge positions like what you hear and hear, which, by the way, are positions I really am inviting you to take if you haven't already taken them. People like Michael Morewood, Ilya Delio, Daramut Amuraku, as well as many, many others, are telling us that we have to rethink all of our religious and theological notions in light of evolutionary cosmology. Now, I want to be clear. It's not that we find the answers we are looking for in evolutionary theology. Finding those answers is the work of theology. Evolutionary cosmology is simply calling us to rethink our religious and spiritual beliefs. And of course, the biggest no longer that we have to deal with is the death of a theistic understanding of God. Now this began to happen with the insights of Nicholas Copernicus, who was a mathematician who lived from 1473 to 1543, and Galileo, who lived from 1564 until 1643, and though Galileo was clearly a polymath, meaning he knew things about so many fields, his work was mostly in the field of astronomy, and that's what he is known for. And he's known for his support for the insights of Copernicus regarding a sun-centered versus an earth-centered universe. Now, of course, as I said earlier, we know so much more about the energy field in which we live than even they did. I will be forever grateful for my encounter with Ilya Delio, who gave to me what I was able to give to you after I first encountered her, the four descriptive words of our cosmos. She said that it was expanding, creative, evolving, and entangled. By the way, analogous discoveries have been made in the field of what I call Jesus studies and biblical studies. If you go back and you look at Jesus, what he said and what he did, through these lenses of the four, these four words, you can see that he embodied these things. 
That's why he was so threatening to the establishment of his day. He was always crossing boundaries of all sorts. And he invites us to follow him. Most organized religion today, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, ignores these insights. It is, however, the direction in which informed spirituality is moving. And religious institutions ignore this information and knowledge at their peril. What you see going on in the culture, both religious and secular, and I don't like those divisions because in reality there is no division, is that culture is not dealing with these things, but culture is simply shouting louder across the chasm that separates us in denial of these things. Constant attempts to deny the reality of what is are not going to help anything. Now, I hope you don't just take my word for these matters. Check them out for yourselves. Um, read Brian Swim's book on creation, on the cosmology. Read Daramut Amuraku's book, Quantum Theology, Spiritual Implications of the New Physics. Uh, read his book, Incarnation, A New Evolutionary Threshold. These things, knowledge of these things is so critically important. The death of theism is a fact. The patient is not simply sick and ailing and expected to recover. The patient is dead. And one of the reactions to this death is what is known as evangelical fundamentalism. Part of being or becoming religiously literate is, is knowing what the fundamentals that fundamentalists hold to are and why they are so dangerous to our collective future. A theistic understanding of God is one. The theistic understanding of God is this. God is a being, supernatural in power, who dwells outside of this world, but who invades it periodically to do what is referred to as God's will. Now, sometimes this God can be compelled through an act called prayer to do this intervening. I have said this repeatedly over the years. I'm going to say it again. No, it's not about having a daily spiritual practice. I'll keep saying that too. But if there is one thing I would like to be remembered about my teaching here in this church that I love so much, that is, God is not out there. God is not a being removed and remote from us. God, though I think it is a dangerous word for us to use, God is being itself. The rational data to back this up is overwhelming. And yet in the face of this overwhelming evidence, people still hang on to a theistic notion of God and the things that grow from this. I grew up in the church, and though it was not militant in form, the religion I got was fundamentalist. And one of the fundamental fundamentals of fundamentalism 
is that the miracles, especially of Jesus, are literal events that actually happened. When I was a child, I asked, why don't we have miracles anymore like those described in the Christian writings? And the answer I got was, well, the age of miracles is over. What I see now is that the age when people saw events as miracles is gone because it got replaced when the so-called enlightenment actually plunged us into a dark age. Miracles still happen, but they're not the kind that you read about in the New Testament. Actually, what's happening right now between you and me is miraculous on so many levels that, again, we cannot comprehend it. A fact is that now evolutionary cosmology does not see God in terms of cause and effect. There was a time when sickness was seen as a reflection of God's punishment. Health was a sign of God's favor. Now we know about germs and viruses and medical researchers have developed vaccines, antibiotics, surgical procedures, and chemotherapies to deal with these things. And these things are just as effective on sinners as they are on saints. God does not send hurricanes to some places and not others as a sign of moral judgment. And yet that kind of thinking is still with us. It's growing not diminishing. During the whole politicization of mask wearing during the pandemic, people have said things like, wearing a mask is useless. If God wants you to get the virus, you'll get it. If God doesn't want you to get it, you won't. God doesn't act like that, nor does God love one country above another. Looked at from outer space, you can clearly see that the boundary lines we draw on our maps don't literally exist. The anger that so-called Christian people expressed when confronted with the reality of things like evolution and how nonsensical at best and how unbelievable at worst their religious beliefs are is, I think, revelatory of its fragility. By the way, you probably already know this, but the label fundamentalism comes from a series of tracts that were published at the beginning of the 20th century in response to the scientific community's information about evolution. There are five fundamentals in Christian fundamentalism. Now, there's fundamentalism in every religion, but in Christian fundamentalism. And I, I think they, you should know about them because they're still very powerful in the minds of many people. These five are the inspiration of Scripture as the literal revealed Word of God. It's in the Bible, must be true. The second fundamental is that of the virgin birth. Um, virgin birth was miraculous, it was literal, and it was the means by which the divine nature of Christ has been guaranteed and introduced into the human family. The third fundamental is the fundamental called the substitutionary view of the atonement that was accomplished by the death of Jesus. It affirms what the fundamentalists call the saving power of his blood and the gift of salvation that was accomplished by his death. 
Jesus died for your sins. And if you believe that, you're off the hook. The other, uh, another of the fundamentalists is the certainty of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There was a literal empty tomb. Jesus was literally dead. He was dead for three, year, three, three days and then he came back to life. So there's a, a belief about the accuracy of both the empty tomb and the apparent stories that are in the gospel tradition. And the last of the fundamentals is the truth of the second coming and the, the literal nature of heaven and hell. There will be a judgment day which is based on the records of one's life and at that judgment you will be assigned either to heaven or to hell as eternal places of reward and punishment. These beliefs are still very powerful among people. As a matter of fact, um, I have heard numerous times over the years people in ordinary life inviting their friends to come to attend one of the classes and somebody would ask about the teacher, me, uh, well, does he believe in the virgin birth? Does he believe in the resurrection? Does he believe in the literal nature? These are litmus tests about whether one is um, a, an authentic Christian. And if you don't believe these things, then everything else is discounted. Carl Jung, who has so significantly affected my life and work, spoke of the difficulties involved in clinging to our previous mythological beliefs. That had not been so when people operated out of a very limited knowledge of the world. In that world, Jung said, a person did not need to sacrifice the intellect to believe in miracles. All of this, said Jung, had radically changed under the compelling influence of scientific rationalism. Here's what he wrote. We are tired of the excessive effort to believe because the object of belief is no longer inherently convincing. Some people complain that evolutionary cosmology make God seems impersonal. And as I've indicated before in my teachings, my first response to that is to suggest that we simply get rid of the word God altogether. That's been proposed by many theologians and spiritual teachers since probably the 60s. John A.T. Robinson was the first person that I read suggesting that. Because when you hear the word God, the immediate response is to think of some person off out there somewhere. So I propose that we get rid of that word altogether. Not think of a being who's out there. For years, I've used the phrase sacred mystery. Uh, Kathleen Singh, some of you know of her because she wrote books called The Grace and Dying and The Grace and Aging, has a very important, not necessarily easy book to read on the Four Tr Noble Truths of Buddhism. And Kathleen Singh, who is an interspiritual teacher, I would say, she's sadly no longer with us, but instead of using the word God or mystery, she uses the word grace. And I think that is a, a, a good term to use. I'm going to stick with sacred mystery, but maybe we'll stick grace in there from time to time. 
Now for me, and you have to speak for yourself, evolutionary cosmology has made the sacred mystery more personal, not less. Um, I think of the great mystery, I think of the mystery, uh, the, the miraculous ways that we are connected. Uh, and, and I think that if we could embrace this reality, perhaps we could learn to be kinder to each other. Uh, of course, another thing that we have to rethink in light of evolutionary cosmology is prayer. I'm not going to get into prayer today. That it will be coming up in a few weeks from now because Holly and I are going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And some of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are explicitly about prayer and we'll be talking about those. So what about Jesus? Well, rethinking Jesus the purpose or function of Jesus is not to rescue us, but rather to call us into the realm of new possibilities, into the fullness of living, to be part of an empowered, empowering community. Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus talked from the kingdom of God and invites us to come into it with him. And we do that by connecting with our brothers and sisters in this community. In his teachings and life, Jesus calls us to follow him. Across those security boundaries that we are constantly creating, we believe they keep us safe, but in fact, they block our fuller, deeper humanity. He invites us to walk past our tribal fears. So I want to invite you to read or reread the Jesus story in light of what you're hearing me say today. You can do it in one sitting. Get a copy of Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament and read the Gospel of Mark. And there you will see over and over again, Jesus going beyond the barriers of human prejudice. For example, in his time, the ultimate symbol of human prejudice was the Samaritan. And yet Jesus made a Samaritan the star of one of his stories. Our prejudices, and we all have them, limit our humanity. The more prejudiced we are, the less human we are. Jesus painted and paints a portrait of new humanity and he invites people to step into it. And this is exciting and this is scary. But we have come to the end of a couple of things. One of them is cosmological dualism. Does that make sense? Cosmology tells us that everything is one piece that we're not here and God is out there, for example. Cosmological dualism has come to an end. Of course, it existed. We just didn't know that. And now we have an opportunity, not just intellectually to know it, but to develop the wisdom and the understanding to see the relevance of this for ourselves. The belief that God is out there is the basic dualism that is tearing us apart. 
Our view of God as separate and distant has harmed our relationship with sexuality, with food, with possessions, with the environment, with animals, with nature, with politics, with our own incarnate selves. And this, this loss explains why we live such distraught and divided lives. So Jesus came to put it all together for us. And in us, he says, in effect, to be human is good. The material and the physical can be trusted and enjoyed. This physical world is the hiding place of sacred mystery and the revelation of this mystery. Far too much of religion has been about defining what God is, where God is, what God isn't, where God isn't, picking and choosing who and what has God's image and who and what doesn't. And in reality, it's not up to us. We have no choice in the matter. We are beloved, everyone, Catholic, Protestant, Christian, Muslim, black, white, gay, straight, able-bodied, disabled, male, female, Republican, Democrat, we are all children of God. Folks, this kind of renewed understanding of the sacred, of Jesus, of the foundational documents of the Jewish Christian tradition is profoundly important. And we do this work, I do by preparing to be here, you do it by being here, you do it by following up on what you learn here, by a decision to read the books that Holly and I suggest to you. We, we do it by keeping the neighbor who has been given to us to love from suffering. We do it by the kind of beliefs that we have and, and embody. There was a time when people believed things that caused them to burn so-called heretics at the stake and fought brutal wars to impose a particular version of Christianity onto others. We do this renewed kind of theology in the gap between the no longer and the not yet to protect the rights of those who have been so damaged by a misshaped Christianity like our brothers and sisters who are in the LBGTQ plus community and people of color. Theology matters. Beliefs matter. It matters how we think. Whatever we mean when we use the word God matters. Real religion isn't a private matter. And that's another thing that we have come to the end of as well. And that is we have come to the end of what I call individual salvation. The question of religion used to be, are you saved? Meaning, are you going to go to heaven when you die? It's all about you, your individual precious little soul. But uh, I'm going to elaborate more on this as we go forward and, and, and not today. There will be a time for that. But I do want you to think about it. The point now is that real religion is a communal matter. What we do together to enhance life, 
to expand love, to encourage being matters. It matters. God understood this way matters. The realm of reality into which Jesus invites us matters. Now, I want to teach about Jesus because people know about Jesus, but I think they don't know Jesus. I think this applies to liberals as well as conservatives. Again, labels that I do not like. So one of my intentions as we continue into the not yet is to teach about Jesus. I am in the process of reading two new-to-me books about early Christianity and about Jesus. I'm not yet in a place to recommend them. But I think that the kind of thing that I'm seeing that I'm doing is something that we all need to be involved in the process of if we're going to update our data, our religious data, and bring it into a new era. I'll say this briefly. Jesus did not come down from some heaven above. Cosmological dualism is over. Jesus rose up among a specific race and religion of people, and he embraced his Jewish faith in such a radical way that he demonstrated to some of those who heard him a life-transforming way to live. He did it because he embraced the central tenets of the Jewish religion. It was a tenet about people being created in the image of God and their needing to live lives of justice, inclusion, and compassion. When you start with understanding God in the way that I am trying to describe, a God that embraces everything and everyone, a God that is safe, a God that is loving, a God who embraces and loves everybody. If you, if you take this up, then justice can't be far behind. Far too many people have grown up with a mistaken belief that God is some being to be frightened of and not a loving mystery that embraces every person. You and I are on this exciting journey uh, that is leaving behind beliefs about both religion and spirituality that are no longer useful. Certainly, they're no longer credible. And, and we're moving forward towards something uh, that is a growing understanding of how we fit in this evolving, expanding cosmos that we are ever so briefly privileged to be a part of. I think this is salvation. Salvation is not eternal life in some boring, heart-playing place. Salvation is being lifted out of the muck and mire of everyday existence and, to, and into an awareness of, uh, and an interconnectedness and the wonder of all that is and all who are. 
Yes, the, the gap between the no longer and the not yet is way bigger than we thought. We've learned that in the last year or two. And what I want to end with today is by saying it is not a gap. It's really more like a chasm. But it's really all okay. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Thank you for spending this time with me, and Holly and I will see you here next Sunday.